Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Let's say that you were befriending and sharing your faith with a Hindu. What are some key things you'd want to park on or introduce that person to or have a discussion about? Okay, assurance of salvation. Yeah, that's good because that's not part of Hinduism. The whole concept of salvation really isn't even there. Yeah. In this life. Good. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay, so the, the parking on the concept of hope in this life. Yeah. What else? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. We're just talk, for those of you who just arrived, we're just asking the question, if you're sharing your faith with a Hindu, what are some key things you'd want to emphasize? Hope, assurance. How about the knowability of God? Or the person, personality of God? These are things that are very distinct if you were to compare Christianity to Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Yep, Sam. Good. Did you guys notice that in that video on Sunday? The compassion video that the girl was talking about how her family worshipped 2,000 gods and now she uh, worships one and he actually answers her prayer, her prayers. It's very important. It all, sometimes I think we there's a sense in which when we're together as Christians, we talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with God. But because we know we live in a, a society that's highly oriented toward the scientific method, I don't think we actually talk about that enough because it's not something you can kind of prove or objectify. So we tend to go automatically to like the scientific cosmological arguments, which are important to have. But we almost tend to be a little bit shy to talk about the personhood of God or having a personal relationship with God because we, we don't think we're going to get anywhere with it. But I do think that there's something powerful about testifying to your walk with God. Also being able to answer some of the more critical intellectual arguments. But I do think that we should also talk about the benefits of the Christian God, if you could say that. And the fact that he walks with us and we can have a personal relationship with him. And we should talk about how he's answered our prayer or how he's spoken to us through his word or how he saved us or transformed us or helped us to overcome our temptations or helped us through depression or whatever it might be that God's done in your life. There's something powerful about listening to someone's story and hearing how God has actually transformed them. 
And if that person has had the privilege of knowing you long enough to see what you used to be like and what you're like now, that's even more powerful of a testimony. So don't be afraid of of talking about sort of the softer side of apologetics when you're sharing your faith. It'll probably get the person thinking about the deficits of their own understanding of God or the gods in this case. Okay, any other comments or questions? What I'd like to do then is have a conversation about evidentialism. The reason why I think this is important is as we do apologetics, it is important for us to think through, and this might sound overly simplistic, but it's important for us to think through how we even perceive truth. So what is truth? Remember Pilate asked Jesus that? What is truth? Sometimes when we're talking with people and we're trying to prove our point over theirs, we may find that they actually didn't have the same concept of truth that we have. And so I want to talk tonight about evidentialism. And evidentialism is a worldview, as are many of the other concepts we've looked at. There's pluses and minuses to it. But I want to sort of uh, uh, share with you um, some uh, sort of in a more sequential way than we might normally have opportunity to what evidentialism is and some of its positives and drawbacks. So um, believe it or not, I had a speeding ticket once. Does that surprise anybody? And, uh, well, I've actually had a few, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> they were all before I was 25, except for one. <laughs> and um, you know how in our system you can go and sort of have your day in court. And generally what happens is they reduce the, uh, the uh, ticket for you, right? And sometimes what happens is you just simply show up and, before you stand before the judge, they just kind of take you in a back room and they say, okay, how about we just drop it down and you sign off and you just pay less, right? But um, one time I got a ticket and I can't even remember the circumstances of it because I don't have the greatest memory for stuff like this, but um, I felt that it was unjust. So not only did I say I don't want to go in the back room and have a conversation, I want to stand before the judge and I want to defend myself because I think I'm innocent. So um, I had the opportunity to do that, to stand before the judge and to share my evidence for him so that I could have my ticket dismissed. And I can tell you, when you stand before a judge, whether it be for a a speeding ticket or anything else, they're not concerned about your personality. They're not concerned about your feelings. They're looking for evidence. What's your evidence? What's the concrete evidence that proves your innocence or your guilt, right? So in a a court of law, people are looking for evidence. And in our society as a whole, when we talk about matters of faith, people often say, show me the evidence, prove it to me. So you almost feel like you're on trial, just like you would be in a court of law. And um, this is one, but it's not the only one way to determine that which is true, to look at the cold hard facts, to look at the evidence. When we share our faith, there's some people that will demand evidence. And if they demand evidence and don't accept any other form of truth, we call them, whether they know it or not, we call them in worldview studies, evidentialists. Not very creative, but that's the title that's used in worldview studies. And so what is an evidentialist? What, what are sort of the hallmarks of a person that essentially says that which is true is that which is provable by tangible facts 
logic, and so forth. Well, here are five characteristics of evidentialism. An evidentialist, and this is on page 34 of your notes, claims that truth is based on facts or events. It has nothing to do with the subjective, meaning your opinion. Or it has nothing to do with intuition, but it has to do with the cold, the hard, the factual. Secondly, um, since two people can look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions, one may ask the question, well, how do I determine if the facts are even the facts? Well, an evidentialist would reply, the facts of life, whatever it is you're looking at, are true in and of themselves despite different interpretations. So while two different people can interpret the evidence differently and come to different conclusions, the evidence is the facts regardless of the problems or pluses of the interpretive method that one uses. In other words, they would say factual information is objective and factual information really is the only thing that's objective. So one must be careful then in their interpretation of the facts. Uh, if left to, and they often say, speak for themselves without human biases, religious biases, personality biases, cultural biases, misreading of the evidence, that the facts themselves will always reveal to us the truth of the matter. Facts can be historically based, so there's different kinds of facts, like the incarnation. And by the way, Christians are often considered, some Christians consider their approach to apologetics evidentialist-like. It's called rational evidentialism. So there's different ways that one could think of facts. Facts can be historically based, like there was an incarnation of Jesus Christ or Napoleon conquered Europe or Barack Obama is the president of the United States. Okay? And Bill Clinton was a president of the United States before him. Presently observed, for instance, if you're standing in a gymnasium, it's an observable fact that we are in a gym. Or they can be futuristically oriented. Although I will not observe it, it's a fact that one day I will die. So that's a fact that most people wouldn't debate. But you act, it's a fact, but you actually haven't experienced it or seen it or proven it yet. But it's, it's logical based upon the fact that everybody dies. And that truth has more weight when it is verified by many people publicly than by one person subjectively. So, as you look at these aspects or characteristics of evidentialism, there's actually a lot of good in it. It emphasizes truth. It emphasizes the objective. It emphasizes that which is testable, that which you can prove. And so when we go about the task of apologetics, it's perfectly acceptable at times to share facts, to enter into rigorous debate about things, to try to bring evidences, historical evidences, literary evidences, archaeological evidences, logical evidences for the existence of God or aspects of that relate to Christianity. So, and, and But at the same time, we need to sort of uh, be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that this worldview, this way of looking at truth is actually the only way of looking at truth or that it's sufficient to encounter all that is true. So the positives of it, before we hit the negatives, are 
that generally speaking, it is true that the more public and objective a fact is, the more believable it is. And that personal views are less trustworthy. So if someone said to you, um, I just saw a gorilla running down Olette Avenue, you, you're going to have to choose based upon your knowledge of that person to believe such an outlandish event or to disbelieve that. But if a thousand people say, we all just saw a gorilla running down Olette Avenue and they're showing you photographic evidence, well, then the believability of that is greatly heightened. It's possible that it wasn't a gorilla, that it was some dude in a suit pretending to be a gorilla or some other animal that no one had ever seen before that looks like a gorilla. It's possible, but the probability is, well, if a thousand people are saying it, we have photographic evidence, so forth, it's probably, generally speaking, more true if more people see something than if one person sees something. However, that's not always the case. A thousand people can be wrong and one person can be right. Secondly, they stress the importance of truth being based in facts. Facts are not based in theories, but theories in facts. Too many people today base their truth upon personal, limited, subjective experience. So it's equally true that, like, let's say, in a church like this, when we are talking about our experiences with God, Remember, we talked a few minutes ago about testifying to this objective, about how God's working in our lives. We do have to be a little bit careful about that, too. Because you may say, you know, I had a dream or a vision last night, and God told me that he wants me to sell all my belongings and move to Africa. And maybe you've heard people make statements like that. Well, it's, it's very possible that that is actually what happened, that God revealed himself to them in a dream, and God wants them to sell all their possessions and move to Africa. That's very possible. It's also possible that they ordered pizza the night before from a disreputable pizza company with bad pepperoni and had a nightmare or some sort of a dream that wasn't from God, but which they interpreted as being from God. So in other words, a person can interpret something based upon personal experience to be theologically true factually true but in fact it, it may be that that's not the case that god didn't speak to you that you thought he did but he didn't right so we need to be careful about the subjective and not necessarily always interpret our subjective experiences as true we, it may be that we had an experience but something was missing that disallowed us to interpret that experience properly and then third, facts do need to be interpreted in order to formulate truth. For example, if I see something that is red, that is round, that's the size of a fist, that's sweet, that has a core, that has skin on it, and that has pulp, um, I can look at that object, but it's an interpretive step to then put all those facts together and say, my conclusion is, is that this is an apple. That's actually an interpretive step. So facts need interpretation to take on meaning because it's possible that I misinterpret the facts, especially if it's the first time that I've ever seen an apple. I've heard about its characteristics, but it's the first time I've ever seen an apple. It's possible for me to misinterpret the facts, and instead I'm looking at some other object that I've never experienced before. 
So those are some positive elements of this view, but there's also some drawbacks. I want you to think about this a little bit. Facts, especially religious ones, are often interpreted within the context of a religious worldview. For example, a theist can look at the facts for Christ's miracles and come to a much different interpretation of them than an atheist would. So hypothetically, you could have uh, an atheist that maybe believed that Christ performed miracles but contributes them to a different source or different phenomenon than a theist would. Or, likewise, if a person was always told that when they encounter a red, round, fist-shaped object, that that's actually called an orange, and that's what they were falsely told their entire lives, then we could argue for a long time but not change each other's minds because that's what they were taught was true. So we could hypothetically both be right, both be wrong, or one might be right and the other wrong. But in short, the point is you always bring your experiences, your interpretation, your understanding of things, your ability to listen, your ability to see and put things together and draw conclusions. I'll, I'll give you just a little example of this. The architect brings some drawings. So they're on big pieces of paper. And he's got our building sketched out on it. There's this rectangle down here. It's the gym, hallway, and a building and parking lot. And then he's got some sketches for what the new auditorium might look like. And so uh, you're looking at those. And uh, I like that kind of stuff. And I've seen a lot of blueprints and drawings. So automatically I can say, okay, that's the auditorium and that's the office and that's the fellowship hall and that's where the new building there's the parking right but i remember showing those drawings to a couple of people who just don't look at drawings like that and they're just like i, I don't even know what this is like where where do i start like that that's the gym oh and that's the fellowship room like they just don't think that way they're not used to looking at drawings if you were to say do you realize this building is in the shape of an l i bet you some of you here would say oh, i guess it is but i've never even thought about that because it's just not the way you interpret being in a building. You think of space, pretty colors, whatever else, but you may not be able to take out a piece of paper to actually sketch out what this building looks like, whereas someone else might, because that's how they're used to looking at one aspect of life because of their background or levels of interest, but another person interprets something very differently, or they need to be taught how to interpret it. Secondly, if you think about it, facts themselves have no inherent meaning without context. So the evidentialist says, well, the, the facts speak for themselves. Okay, well, let's talk about something that we believe to be a fact, that Jesus raised someone from the dead. Well, we look at that in its context. We look at it in the context of prophecy about what the prophets told us Jesus would be like, some of the things he would be able to do. We look at it from the perspective about what's normal. It's not normal for people to be raised from the dead. We look at it from the perspective of where Jesus was born, who his parents were, his lineage, his claims, his purpose, his methods, our experience with him, our encounter with him in the moment of salvation, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. This is the context of our lives. There's all this information and experience that we bring to, let's say, the reading of that event in the Word of God. 
And so with all this knowledge that we have, we look at it, we're like, wow, that's a miracle. Well, let's assume you've never heard of Jesus, never heard of the miracles of Jesus, never read any prophecy, never thought about or had an intellectual or practical conversation with someone about the nature of God, Christianity, faith, knew nothing about this. And you're just sort of reading it. You're like, eh, fairy tale. Or I don't care. It's just not relevant to you because you're missing all these pieces of information or experiences that surround the event that you just read about. So the whole meaning of the event without a context attached doesn't mean as much for someone as for someone that has the context attached. For example, this is another example. In order to even label something a miracle, <laughs> you need to understand what a miracle is. So you'd have to have some knowledge. And of course, most people would have this, but maybe there would be some that wouldn't. You'd have to have some knowledge that a miracle, by definition, is something that breaks natural law. And in order to see something breaking natural law, you'd have to have a further piece of information. What is natural law? Well, dead people don't come out of graves. That's kind of a natural law. So you have to have that prerequisite, we'll call it, information in order to see the miracle for what it is. And it may be that someone doesn't see the miracle because they don't have the prerequisite information that's needed to interpret the fact. So it's, a, it's actually a little bit misguided to say facts speak for themselves. No, they don't. Facts are always interpreted and thought about in the context of a context. There's always other information that comes to play. And in your own life, just as students of the scriptures, I'm sure that there are times when you can think back where you're reading a passage of scripture and it seemed like so difficult and so opaque and so hard to understand. And you sort of set it aside but you learned in other contexts or sermons or reading or teaching or whatever more about God or the nature of Christianity. And then maybe years later came back and like, how, why was it so difficult? It's such a no-brainer. This is like you know, kindergarten Christianity for me now. Because you have more information that makes it more uh, quicker and easier for you to interpret Scripture. Okay. Third, another drawback. Some evidentialists look at nature as a proof of the existence of God. So, for instance, we might say, and this can be a good argument in certain settings, based upon the fact that we see order and design in the universe, doesn't that imply that there must be a designer? In a sense, these are scientific proofs. However, it's interesting that some worldviews, maybe not the predominant Western worldview, but let's Let's go be missionaries in India, in a pantheistic environment. Among the Dalits, for instance, some worldviews reject the scientific approach or haven't thought about it or claim that there are no such things as natural laws, believe it or not. There are some worldviews that don't believe in natural law and you're designing arguments to try to prove the existence of God based upon natural law. So a pantheist, for example, a true pantheist, does not believe in natural laws and therefore would include that to appeal to natural law as evidence is just to beg the question because there is no natural law. So all this is to enforce the proposition that 
truth is being interpreted through a worldview. And that's why I felt that it would be beneficial for us to spend quite a bit of time throughout this course touching down over and over again on issues of worldview. Because otherwise you end up talking past someone like this because you're using definitions and concepts that you assume you agree on, but you don't. And so you're, t you're talking over them. So there's many people, of course, in the West that might appreciate you having a conversation with them about natural law and things that you see in whatever, the, the complexity of uh, the cell. Say, man, look at the complexity of a cell and all the components of a cell right down to the uh, amino acids and the proteins. Say, doesn't that sort of look like a mini machine? And in that machine then, couldn't one assume that there's some sort of a designer or there's some sort of prerequisite information that made all that work? And you may get some success out of that illustration if you're dealing with someone who thinks scientifically. They're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, I don't know how that could have just all happened. Every part had to be exactly as it is in order for that cell to be living. So yeah, there maybe there is a designer. But if you're sitting down with a pantheist, I don't care. Because <laughs> I don't think about natural law. So these are just some um, potential drawbacks. So evidentialism has many positive characteristics, mainly that facts are supposed to lead to truth. And yet the key is facts require interpretation. So I, I love it when people will say, when you're debating with them, usually it happens when someone's like, doing something stupid like living in sin or whatever right and so you quote the scripture you read the bible and they're like well that's just your interpretation people use that very commonly when it comes to the bible but in fact that's true of everything in life it's like duh yeah no guff tell me something i don't already know because you have to look at the facts of nature in the scientific method and interpret them in a certain context to draw a conclusion or if you're studying soci sociology, you look at characteristics among human beings, how they interact, how they love and hate and go to war and on and on, form societal structures and governments. You look for patterns of behavior, but you've got to interpret those patterns of behavior to come up with sociological principles and theories, right? So, of course, we interpret the Bible, but we interpret everything in life. I'm interpreting your expressions or lack thereof right now in the back of my mind to determine whether you're even listening. And I could misinterpret you, but based upon the fact that I've sat in chairs like this in front of many people over the years, my conclusions probably are going to be correct. Most of you seem to be listening. And most of you probably want to be here. But I could be wrong, because it, it requires me to interpret your gestures, right? So life is all about interpretation. It's not just that facts flow directly, that the facts are somehow these objective things that go directly from being facts into our heads. There's an interpretive process that takes place. And we could be right or we could be wrong. So the next thing I want to talk about is combinationalism. And this is a fancy word for basically people that pick and choose a little bit from a variety of worldviews or religious perspectives or persuasions to try to formulate a approach to life. Now, normally, 
I, I would say that combinationalism is probably less philosophical, theological, and more practical. And that most people aren't combinationalists in that they're trying to theologically or philosophically reconcile opposing views about the nature of God. But rather they maybe don't want to offend people. Or they like multiculturalism or a multi-religious setting. So they're sort of picking and choosing what they consider to be the best of all the experiences that they've had or heard about and combining them sort of into one. This is an important one to talk about because it, my opinion, my interpretation, is that a vast majority of Canadians fall into this worldview category. And that there's certain things about Jesus they kind of like. And there's certain things about faith they kind of like. And there's certain things about science they kind of like. And there's certain things about Hinduism they kind of like. And there's certain things about sexual ethics that they like. And there's certain things about sexual freedom that they like. And, and on and on and on. They sort of pick and choose. And they're very eclectic in their approach to life. Now, if you challenge them philosophically or theologically, you find out in like 45 seconds that there's all kinds of inconsistencies. For instance, with sexual ethics, they want someone to trust and who can be relied upon, but at the same time, they might be okay with a friend sleeping around. So that's a, that's a conflict, in fact. So they want whoever they're with, to be monogamous, to be committed to them. And their experience says, that's best for me. That feels, it feels good when someone says, no, it's just you and me in bed together. But in practice, or in theory, they're, they're okay with people sleeping around and being uh, promiscuous. They have no problem with that. Well, if you think about that, that's actually a contradiction. Because what they want to experience personally doesn't match up with what they think is ethically or morally right or wrong you see so a lot of people like that there's um, conflicts and contradictions so let's just look broadly speaking at combinationalism they would say there's no one view that works no one worldview no one religious view they all have flaws and most probably even have some pluses attached. That presuppositions are inevitable and necessary in order to know anything. So, for instance, logic presupposes structure. Some people think that the laws of logic are self-evident. Well, they kind of are, but they require in advance of that an assumption on your behalf. And that is, is that there is structure to life, to thinking, to the way things work. If you actually deny the reality of structure, logic becomes impossible. Facts do not speak for themselves. There is also and always a worldview attached to interpretation. So combinationalists are generally a little bit skeptical of what you will say as you're presenting Christianity, or they will listen and they will nod, but what they're actually nodding at is the fact that you've had an experience that they appreciate and value, and they're glad that you've had that experience. So I told you the story of my stripper neighbor, who I'm sharing the gospel with, and all the dots are connecting in his head, and he's repeating back to me 
what I've said. And then at the end of this long conversation, this very odd remark, I think I'm going to try Buddhism. And I, I realized later as I thought about it, that it was almost like he was like, oh, that's good for Aaron. Wow, that's that's neat. That's interesting. Like, I'm happy for you. I'm glad that you've encountered God. But that's not for me. And that's so different than the way I think that it kind of took me by surprise. So they would say in an extreme way that there's always a worldview attached, and it's true, but they're sort of take it to the next level, and that's good for you, but it may not be good for me. Truth is scientific. I mean, they don't necessarily throw out the scientific method. It must have consistency and factuality attached to it. So what are some of the positives of combinationalism? Well, as we've already stated, people do need worldviews to interpret facts. I mean, while while it's perfectly acceptable and true to be a person of conviction, and I would consider myself such a man, I can say I absolutely am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this particular statement is true. I can I can do that. If someone were to push back and say, "Yeah, but is it possible that you're wrong?" Well, I would have to admit to them, yeah, it is possible that I'm wrong, even though I'm 100% convinced that I'm not, or 95% convinced that I'm not, or whatever it might be. But it's possible that I'm wrong because I'm a fallible human and I had to take certain interpretive steps to arrive at that conclusion. So it is logically possible that I'm wrong. So we do need to admit to the fact that we do bring our worldviews and our interpretive grids to our interpretations of life, or the facts of life. They also move in the right direction, recognizing that no one test for truth is adequate. So we talked a little bit about tests for truth. I don't think that the scientific method is something we should just wholesale throw out. I mean, there's a sense in which good science, as with good economic theory or political theory, can lead us to truth, right? And we need to be careful because sometimes people think, well, Christians are anti-science or anti-good economics or anti-political. No. But we would simply agree with the combinationalists that no one test for truth is necessarily adequate, that there's flaws in the scientific method, just as there's flaws in hermeneutical methods, which is art and science of biblical interpretation. So they do try to be comprehensive in their approach and in another positive that i like is that in certain situations it's true that livability and logical logical consistency is adequate to test truth so combinationalists would say well you can talk pie in the sky about your faith all you want whatever faith they're talking to but is it livable is it logically consistent in other words they want to know like does this actually work for me now there's a, there's a negative to that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But I do like that in some ways because I think that one of the greatest apologetic tools that one can use to promote Christianity is that if you put Christianity within a box, so draw a box, throw in everything we know about God, Christ, Holy Spirit, salvation, sin, humanity, end times, prophecy, all of our ethics, all of our morals, so everything that we know, within this box, properly lived, Christianity is, in fact, logical, and it is, in fact, livable. 
It really is. So it might sound sort of funny to say this, but here's the idea, and you've probably heard me preach this before, that if a person actually lives out the word of God consistently and properly, they will have no regrets. Like I've never actually had someone come to me and say, you know what, I've been following Jesus Christ, walking in his footsteps, following all of his commands, and I'm absolutely committed to him and my life sucks. I've never heard anybody say that. I've heard people say to the effect, well, I kind of went 75% Jesus and 25% me and it got me in trouble. Or I wanted to be 100% into Jesus, but I was only 60% and it got me into trouble. So the inconsistency. But if a person actually consistently consistently and uh, lives out the Christian faith, guess what? It actually works. It actually improves relationships. It actually improves your mind. It improves your attitudes, your emotions. It improves, it imp- improves the way that you work in your vocation, the way that you handle your money, the way that you discipline your kids, interact with your spouse. It actually works, believe it or not. Surprise, surprise. So it's livable and it's consistent. And by the way, because we were talking about Hinduism for the last couple of weeks, one of the problems with Hinduism is that it's in fact not livable. It doesn't answer the big questions. It doesn't provide hope. It doesn't provide uh, relational uh, health. It doesn't help you to deal with marital disputes or raising... It, it doesn't, in fact, but interestingly, Christianity does. So that that's, a, in a sense, a good thing, and it's it's a pragmatic argument, yes, so it's not an adequate test for all truth, but it at least takes us in the right direction. So we can say to someone, you know, if you actually follow Jesus Christ, your 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 life will, in a sense, be better. Now, it's not going to be flawless, but it's it's going to be better, and it's within its box. It's logically consistent. So, what I mean by that is, if there's many people that will look at, let's say, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and they'll say, well, that's illogical, because how can three persons be eternally united in one essence. That's illogical based upon mathematics, let's say. I'd say, okay, well, if you evaluate the doctrine of the Trinity outside of our box, I can see your point. But if you evaluate the doctrine of the Trinity within the entire faith called Christianity, it's not illogical, and it's actually necessary and consistent. So you can have lengthy conversations about like philosophical conversations about how, in fact, for a God to have relationships with humanity requires that that God, one could say, logically, has had to have had some exposure to relationships prior to creation. So let's draw a line, just to use this example. And this line will go back to Infinity. Is that how you do infinity or is it the other way? Sideways, okay. That's the number eight, right? Something like that? Jimmy? Kind of, okay. Got the engineer on me here. So uh, this represents eternity. And uh, 
So God, this is God, and God is eternally existent. Just think about that for a minute. It kind of does something weird in your mind, right, when you think about the concept of eternality, because you actually don't have the ability to. But we try to think about what would it be like for God to have been, been around forever? Okay, well, all of a sudden, the world is created. And within that world, we have people. And there we go, better, into eternity. Well, according to Christian theology, this God in space and time is a relational God. Okay, now let's compare this to Islam. Islam would say, we agree with all of that. God's existed forever and he wants some measure of relationship. Now, they define relationship differently, but there's a measure of relationship. But he's only one. We'd say, okay, well, we believe he's only one as well. So there's just one God, right? But uniquely, the Christian God, the triune God, is a God who eternally exists in three persons. What does that say? That says that in his very makeup, to use human terms, in his very DNA, our God is a relational God who existed for all of eternity in perfect relationship with himself. And so as eternity happens and this God chooses to create us, that this God in and of his own DNA has the ability to have a relationship with us. So the question the Muslim theologian or philosopher must ask is, how can a God who's a static one, who in and of his own character and makeup has no relational dimension to him at all, who's existed forever, suddenly have a relationship when that's not even part of his characteristics? How does that work? See? So... Back to our box, if this box represents everything that the Christian knows, well, within this box, we have a God who is eternally three in one. And the only reason why that's difficult to explain, and this is difficult to explain because we often explain things by analogy. We try to point to things within the created universe as an analogous thing to this God. The only reason why this is difficult for us to explain is because there's nothing else in creation like that. You can't compare God to anything. You can't compare him to like water turning to ice, turning to steam. That's that's a thing in three different forms, but that's not God. You can't say, well, we're body, soul, spirit. No, you have a body, soul, spirit, but you're not three persons in one. You're just one person with three dimensions or three aspects. You can't say, well, it's like a cherry pie. There's cherries, there's filling, there's crust. No, that's three ingredients in one dessert. But God and God alone is three persons who eternally exist in one essence. There's nothing like that in creation. And that's why the human mind has trouble comprehending that. But that doesn't mean that that's logically inconsistent within the box. In fact, I would suggest that it's a necessary doctrine because if our God is not three in one or at least two in one or four in one, then that God has no ability to have relationship with you which is a huge part of Christianity. You take that out and house of cards falls. Now, we could say a lot more about that, but I'm just taking one, one slice of our doctrine and showing you that it's actually consistent 
in relationship to our view of eternity, our view of what relational beings are like, our view of what this God's redemptive plan for these people are. It's actually consistent within the box. So Christianity, properly understood, is logically inconsistent within its box. But when you try to take another worldview, another test for truth, and test it, sometimes that's where uh, it, quote-unquote, comes up short. But it's not actually coming up short. It's coming up short because the test for truth we're using to evaluate it is inadequate. Does this make sense, or is this all, like, two up there? Most of you are going like this. <laughs> Yes and no. <laughs> okay, so that was this is what we call a bunny trail. This is a little off track. Okay, some negatives. Negatives about combinationalism. So you can say to a combinationalist, well, who's to say that your supposed worldview is, is correct? Uh, to interpret the world theistically, it's necessary to have a theistic worldview, but... Is the theistic worldview correct? Or you could talk about any other worldview. Is, it, is the pantheistic worldview correct? So you kind of got to go back to discussions about worldview. Also, if combinationalists basically don't like people saying, well, our tests for truth, our worldview, our religion is the only one. And so they would say, basically, you got a leaky bucket. There's holes in your bucket. Well, if each other's test is a leaky bucket, and in that sense, inadequate, then who says that putting them all together solves the leak? <laughs> Will they not continue leaking? So if you take a bunch of leaky buckets, well, you put them all together, you just got one big leaky bucket. So you sort of need to wrestle with, if we just take a little bit of everything, how do we know that that's better than just sticking with one or two or whatever it might be? Third, the idea that true truth will be livable has the same problems attached that pragmatism does. So now the positive talk I had about the livability of the Christian faith, this is where it has a negative aspect to it. And that in and of itself to say, well, something's true because it's livable, that, that's not adequate either because that's pragmatism. That's saying, well, if it works, do it. And we hear this in a different context in our culture. Well, if it works, do it. Well, just a second now. It should work if you want to do it. But you've you got to be careful in thinking that just because it works, you should do it. So we have to be a little bit careful about not falling into pragmatism. And by the way, we could have a lengthy discussion about pragmatism in terms of the way that we do ministry, the way that we worship, the way that we preach, and on and on and on and on. And essentially say just because something works in the church doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way to do it either. Just because something works for your relationship doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way to conduct yourself, right? Uh, at best, combinationalism only proves what isn't true, or at least pokes holes in what isn't true or points out where the leaky buckets are, because other worldviews may also claim to be consistent and adequate. So that's combinationalism. Any comments or questions about what you've heard so far? Mr. Riddick? Essentially, 
Um, okay, so the question then is about math. Wouldn't math, in a sense, be something that's factual in and of itself? Well, um, math is, let's, let's say you have 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, one could say that's true regardless of your religion, your worldview, and everything else. But in fact, there's a measure of interpretation in there because you have to have a mental concept about what two, when you hear that word, is, about what that symbol and this symbol and this symbol and this symbol represent in order to understand even what's being said. So while the truth behind the symbols, one could say, is more objective than someone saying, I'm in love with you, there still is an interpretive leap that takes place between the, we'll call it the ultimate truth that two things put together with two other things equals four. There's still symbols that one needs to come through in order to comprehend and interpret that reality, so to speak. Does that make sense? Not that I'm aware of. So if that indeed was the case, then that would that statement would be a fact that really doesn't bear a lot of interpretation. Mm -hmm. Although I, I appreciate what you're yeah, saying yeah. about the plus sign. Yeah. The mere fact of the letters, people who maybe can't read and write would not would certainly not be able to grasp those things, or people who are ill or things like that. Mm. Like, yeah. Something that really might be devoid of interpretation as a, a clear statement of truth. Okay. So we have two guys with their hands up at the back that both have degrees in mathematics. So I'm interested in what they have to say. Dave, you want to start us out? Okay. And that, would that be because the axioms are kind of like a concept that needs to be understood in order to even have the conversation? Okay. Okay.
Okay. Very good. Thank you. Well said. I appreciate that. Yep. You gonna pass? Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which story? What did I? What story? Oh, in court. Oh, you want like you want the, the nitty gritty details of my sin, or? <laughs> oh yeah, I had it dismissed. Yeah, yeah, I had it dismissed. By the skin of my teeth, I felt. Very good. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I I think that r rational evidential answers are very good answers to give to people that are asking questions about the nature of Christianity. And they do serve to sort of boost our m measure of confidence in the God that we believe to be true. My concern is that if we throw all of our eggs in one basket, to use that old figure of speech, and say, well, Christianity dies in its cradle if we can't prove it using rational evidences that at some point we're going to be presented with questions that we can't rationally answer and at the same time we're actually detracting from a certain dimension of Christianity that I think is super rational or beyond the rational or apart from the rational and that is the encounter that we have with God and it almost sounds like old school Christianity because I think in my own life, when I was young, I assumed that God was real because I encountered him. And then somewhere along the line, I was taught that that was inadequate. So I had to prove his existence using the scientific method. So then I start reading all my apologetics books and Case for Christ and all that kind of, which is a great book, by the way. Awesome book. You should read it. And it's twin, the, the case for faith. And... Then I sort of started to feel maybe a little bit dry or disconnected from God. And I think I realized over the course of time that I was sort of pushing aside 
the relational dimension of my faith in favor of, well, it answers my intellectual questions. It appeals to this thing. And now my approach is sort of a, uh, an approach where I think it's sort of more of a both and, where it doesn't prove it to you, but I know that God exists because I have a personal relationship with him. I do. And that relationship at times is difficult for me to describe. I can't prove it using the scientific method, but I know it's true here and here. And that actually is adequate to sustain my faith, even if someone throws me an intellectual curveball and I'm like, well, I don't know how to answer that. So if God is real, I know we can't see him, touch him, hear him as we see, touch, and hear each other. But there's a dimension to my existence that testifies to the reality of his presence in my life that is real and that doesn't need scientific evidences to prove to you. It's the walk with God. And my concern is that evangelicalism has drifted a little bit. I was actually talking to a another pastor very recently, and I asked him the question, um, I'm trying to think exactly how I worded it, but I basically asked him the question, well, this is actually what I said. I said, how do you know that there's a God? And he started into the, you know, the cosmological argument and this kind of stuff. And I said, okay, that's good. I like all that stuff. But how do you, have you encountered him? He's like, what do you mean by encounter? I'm not a charismatic. Well, the charismatics didn't make up the doctrine of the presence of God, folks or relationship with God. That's not like a Pentecostal charismatic thing. That's actually kind of a biblical thing, especially if you've ever read the Psalms. And anyway, I I asked about three or four different follow-up questions, and it was almost like he he did not know what I was talking about. Now, I'm not assuming that person doesn't have a relationship with God. Maybe he was shocked. Maybe he was surprised. Maybe he wasn't prepared for the question. Maybe he hadn't thought about it for a while. I don't know. But that concerns me to the very least that a minister of the gospel can't testify to having a personal relationship with God to the same degree that I have a personal relationship with each of you. That I know you exist, not just because I can say, You're human. You have two eyes, two ears, one nose, one mouth. I've seen you. I've shaken your hand. No, I have a relationship with you. And because I have a relationship with you, I know you exist apart from your features and the evidences that I might be able to present that you actually exist. So now Lee Strobel wouldn't deny any of that. But he had an interesting journey in that he went out to, in a sense in a sense, disprove or maybe challenge the reality of Christianity and came back realizing, man, there's actually some depth to this faith. So some people might walk away from God because all they've been taught about is you've got to have a personal relationship with God and they're not feeling it or they don't really know what that means and they're getting hit with all these questions they can't figure it out. So it's important to talk about the evidences, the historicity of Christianity, the historicity of our faith, the, the logical consistency of our faith. It's important for us to have these conversations, but it, 
But in order to do that, we don't need to throw out the personal encounter. This is not personal encounter with God. That's not Hinduism that made that up. That's not a particular strand or brand of Christianity that made that up. That's the God of the Bible. He, he encountered Adam and Eve. He encountered Noah. He encountered Abraham. You know, he encounters us. And that's one of the evidences for his existence. Claudio? Yeah, yeah. So what is our stand? Well, anybody, I, I think that uh, there's there's circles, right? There, a, a, tr- a true brother or sister in Christ is one that's been saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It affirms the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible's the word of God. There's there's a central core, right? And that's what makes a person a true believer and have, having professed their faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's another ring of things that are, pretty important to have let's say daily or weekly fellowship with a person but they're not matters of heaven or hell but it would be difficult maybe to be married to or attend the same church as someone who you know maybe had uh, a very different take than you on um, you know how the church should be operated or you know what the leadership structure should be like in a church or modes of baptism or these kinds of things so it would probably just create disharmony and disunity and then there's things that you know matter even less, like what the left ear on the beast and the, the wart with the hair on it means in the prophetic timeline of things. These probably aren't the kind of things that are all that important, right? So um, it depends on how you use the term. I, I feel very comfortable interacting with anybody who professes that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, but I recognize that for us to get together every week and do church together, it might be kind of difficult if we don't agree on maybe a little bit more than the fundamentals. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk. We're going to talk. We're going to talk a little bit later in the course about the Roman Church, because I think a lot of Christians are naive to history and theology when it comes to the radical. That's not too strong of a word. The radical differences between the Roman Church and biblical Christianity. There is a massive difference between the Roman Church and biblical Christianity on. One fundamental question, how do I get to heaven? It, it's, it's, it's night and day. There was, it's a completely different response to the question, how do I get to heaven? Same belief in who God is, the nature of God, but a completely different belief in the nature of salvation and sort of the doctrines that surround it, the nature of baptism, the nature of the Lord's Supper, you know, the nature of confession and forgiveness. It's complete. Very different than biblical Christianity. So properly understood, um, the it would be very difficult for one to argue that the Roman church and biblical Christianity uh, are trusting in the same thing for eternal life, right? So uh, a, a good Catholic is by definition, okay, hear me carefully, a good Catholic a good Catholic is, by definition, not a person 
who's trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for his or her salvation. They're not. So if you meet a Catholic that says, oh, I am trusting in Jesus and Jesus, listen to this word, alone for my salvation, then you can say you're actually a bad Catholic. And I'm delighted by that. (laughs) But you're a bad Catholic. In fact, your church just pronounced 100 eternal damnations upon you for that belief. That's, That's the Council of Trent. But we'll talk more about that. Let's take a break. There's some brownies, some desserts, some coffee and stuff at the back, and then we'll, we'll get back together in a few minutes. Talk about Mormonism. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about polytheism. But to be honest, there's not a lot of dominant polytheistic religions in Canada, except for Mormonism. So... Rather than just talking about polytheism, this course is supposed to be about doing apologetics in the Canadian context. So I, I've tried to select, can't study everything, I've sought, tried to select worldviews, religions, and cults that we commonly encounter in Canada. So rather than just talking about polytheism, the polytheism of Papua New Guinea, I want to talk about probably one of the most dominant forms of polytheism in North America, and that's Mormonism. Now, I'll tell you a little story. This is kind of interesting. In and around 1857, in Chatham, Ontario, a man was born by the name of Benjamin Franklin St. John. And he lived till 1929. Uh, he was a Mormon uh, preacher in and around Sparta, St. Thomas, even down into Chatham, died in Chatham. And uh, through his influence, his daughter, Adelaide St. John, became part of a break-off group in the Mormon church called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Her son, Miles Rock, uh, became a Mormon, reorganized Mormon minister, and his brother's my grandpa. So Benjamin Franklin St. John's my great-grandfather, Adelaide St. John's my uh, great-great-grandmother, and right down to the time when my grandfather, Harold, was born like Harold Wood, Harold Rock, my grandfather, also claimed to be part of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, although really he didn't attend. But the point is, is in my family history, we have some Mormonism, including a couple Mormon or at least reorganized Mormon uh, preachers. And um, so Mormonism has been around for quite a while. It is active in the North American context in Canada. We have Mormon churches and reorganized churches in, um, in Canada. And so I think it's important for us to have a conversation about their beliefs and ultimately how we can share the true gospel with them. So by, by way of definition, Mormon, the, a Mormon is part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then there's a lot of break-off groups there's a little church on the corner of Howard and Tecumseh, just kind of up a little bit, across from the Lumberjack restaurant, called the Church of Jesus Christ. And that group considers themselves the original Mormons. So I met a fellow from there once. He was doing a house inspection for me many years ago. And I asked him what church he went to, and he said the Church of Jesus Christ. And I said, oh, okay, well, great name, right? 
but uh, what kind of church is it? And he said, well, that, that's the church that Jesus started. And I was kind of waiting for a little smirk or something. But he didn't smirk because he believes that that is the purest kind of church there is. Even purer than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the largest Mormon group. And then out of that comes the what was called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think 10 or 15 years ago, they changed their name to the Community of Christ. And they would be closer to biblical Christianity, but maybe not quite all the way there. Okay, So we're going to focus our conversation a little bit on Mormonism. In order to, in order to understand Mormonism, you need to understand a little bit about a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith. So this comes out of the teachings of Gordon B. Hinckley, one of his followers a long time later. And here's, just, here's the quote. Uh, How great indeed is our debt to Joseph Smith. His life began in Vermont, ended in Illinois, and marvelous things were the things that happened between the simple beginning and the tragic ending. It was he who brought us a true knowledge of God, the Eternal Father, and his risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. During the short time of his great vision, he learned more concerning the nature of deity than all of those who through centuries had argued that matter in learned councils and scholarly forums. He brought us this marvelous book, the Book of Mormon, as another witness for the living reality of the Son of God. To him, from those who held it anciently, came the priesthood, the power, the gift, the authority, the keys to speak and act in the name of God. He gave us the organization of the church and its great and sacred mission. Through him were restored the keys of the holy temples that men and women might enter into eternal covenants with God and that the great work for the dead might be accomplished. He was the instrument in the hands of the Almighty. So, like uh, most cult groups, cult groups have certain features. One of the features is, is that they're generally founded on the teachings of some sort of a charismatic, small c, charismatic leader. Joseph Smith is the originator. Uh, Joseph Smith was the president of the uh, church for some time. And and then there's been a series of uh, other presidents since then. So just I just want to give you, a, I'm pulling most of this information out of a book by Wayne House called Charts of Cult, Sex, and Religious Movements. Talk a little bit about some of the statistics surrounding the Mormon church, and then we're going to look at some of their some of their doctrines. So this, some of these stats are a little bit old. But in 1994, the Church of Jesus Christ, the LDS Church, reported over 9 million members in 2,000 stakes. These are different districts. 21,000 wards and branches and 303 missions worldwide. They had 47,311 full-time missionaries. And they expect to have 12 million members by the end of the century and 157 million by 2015 if the growth rate they're experiencing continues. That's out of the Salt Lake Tribune. So men uh, in the church, a little bit about their worship. Mormon members in good standing attend a variety of services and meetings during a three-hour-long period on Sundays. Men attend the priesthood meeting and women attend four relief society meetings. They have Sunday school classes. They have a four-year cycle for teaching the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, another book that they believe in called The Pearl of Great Price, and another book called The Doctrine and the Covenants and Other Mormon Scriptures. 
It's very formal. They have a planned service that begins with two or three songs, followed by announcements, the passing of the sacrament, communion, individual talks. Talks last from five to 30 minutes, covering subjects from the Bible to personal experience to practical information. Former members claim that attending all Sunday meetings is an unspoken requirement. Okay. So uh, we have Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph Smith basically ruled the church from 1830 to 1844, had 30-plus wives. And then you might hear have heard the name Brigham, Brigham Young. He was the next president of the church, is Brigham Young University. So he uh, ruled from 1944, or 1844 till 1877. So that's quite a period of time. He wasn't officially installed as the president of the church until three years into his his reign. And then there's been a series of other guys, John Taylor, uh, Will Ruff, Woodruff, and so forth and so on. Um, Gordon B. Hinckley started in 1995. I'm not sure if he's since been replaced. I don't know. So general statements of beliefs. Uh, Mormons believe that their church is, and these are all quotes from Mormon documents, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. That's fairly definitive. And it's the only organization authorized by the Almighty to preach his gospel and administer the ordinances of salvation. The only church which has the power to save. That's found in a book called Mormon Doctrine. And interestingly, when you sort of, if you were to list out, Claudio asked a question, well, he asked a question that resulted in a conversation about the fundamentals of the faith. If you were to list out all the fundamentals of the Christian faith, Interestingly, Mormons deny or pervert every single essential doctrine of historic Christianity, bar none. So every single critical doctrine they would pervert or deny, including things like the uniqueness of God, the virgin birth, the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, relegating it to uh, position on par with many other books salvation by grace through faith alone, and so forth and so on. So let's talk a little bit about the history. Let's go back to Joseph Smith, Jr. He was born in 1805. He uh, founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, originally named the Church of Christ in 1830. And this occurred after he claimed to have had several supernatural encounters with God. So remember I said earlier, just because we don't deny our supernatural encounter with God, it's a powerful testimony to our lives, but it doesn't mean because you had an experience that it's necessarily true, especially if your experience is completely contrary to scripture or someone else's experience, then you got a, a problem, right? Anyway, he, he believed that uh, beginning in 1820, uh, at the age of 14, after retreating into a secluded spot in the woods, he had a vision of God and of Jesus Christ, God the Father and of Jesus Christ. And there's been a number of conflicting versions of what that encounter looked like published in Mormon documents uh, since then. According to him, Jesus allegedly told Smith that Christian churches, quote-unquote, were all wrong. And that he should join none of them. So in 1823, he reported his second vision in which an angel calling himself Morani, interestingly spelt moron with an I, okay, <laughs> uh, appeared to him. 
He later claimed that the angel was a personage named Nephi, N-E-P-H-I, in his book, The Pearl of Great Price. And this story also has been evolved over the years. So Mormons currently identify the being of light as the angel Morani. The angel allegedly appeared to Smith and revealed the existence, listen to this, of some golden plates inscribed with an account of the former inhabitants of North America. These plates supposedly contained what he called the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So he has this vision, the supernatural revelation that kind of no one else has heard about that's supposed to take us to the next level. It's, it's actually very similar, not in its substance, but the, the idea is very similar to the encounter that Muhammad had in the caves and received a revelation that supposedly no one else had. So for four years, he received visitations from the angel. He retrieved the golden plates from their resting place in, 19, or in 1827. And according to Smith, they contained writings in what he called Reformed Egyptian, the, the language known as Reformed Egyptian. Now, this is a language for which there's actually no known archaeological evidence. He claims to have translated the plates with the Urim and Thummim, which is mentioned in the Old Testament, sometimes described as a seer stone placed in a hat. Uh, the product of his occult translation was the Book of Mormon. So he founded his new church soon after the translation was published. Now, it grew rapidly. Many people believed him and followed his teachings. It came into conflict with other Americans at the time. And a series of violent confrontations formed the, uh, forced the Mormons to relocate several times it even resulted in the uh, arrest and subsequent murder of, uh, of Joseph Smith. So now he becomes a martyr. So the story goes, he's, he's in uh, a jail cell in Carthage, Illinois, and the mob basically overtakes the jail and murders him, right? So this, in a sense, contributed to the birth of the movement because then he's a, he's a heroic martyr. So then there's a bit of a power struggle, and Brigham Young, a high-ranking Mormon, controls the sect he leads the people from illinois to salt lake city from 1846 to 1847 and i don't know if you've ever seen i've seen this movie i can't i can't remember the name of it it may just be named the meadow mountain massacre but in 1857 there's something called the meadow mountain massacre where indians and mormons murder approximately 100 immigrants on the train passing through Utah. So then the Mormons claimed there was a guy named John Smith that basically was acting outside of Mormon control who instigated this massacre on the immigrants moving to the West, right? So, and then there's a bunch of other people that have led the church since and added to its doctrine. But that's the basic basis of it. Early 1800s, this guy claims to have been visited for four years by this angel he sends him to look for these gold plates. They're written in Reformed Egyptian. The Book of Mormon's translated out of that. The plates go missing. No one's ever seen them or can validate their existence. So here are some things about the Mormon Church in terms of its uh, its beliefs. Let's talk first of all. It's uh, first of all about its doctrine of revelation. What is the source of its truth? Where do they believe, and through what do they believe God has spoken? 
So the church has four standard works. They're viewed as authoritative and inspired scripture. You can write them down as follows. The Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And then there's lots of other literature that's considered authoritative, kind of like papal-type announcements by different leaders of the church since. Sermons, writings, tracts, brochures, literature, all that kind of stuff. But those are the big four. And these four volumes are considered the measuring rod, the gauges by which all things are judged. So obviously that's different than Orthodox Christianity in that we believe that God's special revelation is hemmed in within what we call the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about its substance, but I, I think in terms of its, its English it has, because interestingly, we have the King James Version being translated and published first in 1611, went through a couple revisions since then. But a couple hundred years later, in the early 1800s, the Book of Mormon is actually written in King James English. So it, in the day, it sounds, a lo- it sounds Bible-ish. It's kind of written in English that's a couple hundred years old. And I believe there's been some edits and updates since then to kind of thin out the English a little bit and make it a little more palatable. I don't know about like substantive changes. I'm not sure about that. Good question, though. So, um, in, interestingly, they uh, uh, ha- suddenly add to the Bible three other books. And these books all come from uh, Joseph Smith and perhaps some editing and whatnot by some of his media followers. So, the Bible then, interestingly, in, pra- in theory is the Word of God, but in practice becomes less and less the Word of God. Because they then claim that the Bible has been changed and corrupted and has not been preserved and is full of errors. Now, that's a convenient doctrine, I must say. Because if you were to compare the doctrine to the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Gate Price, you're going to find theological substantive discrepancies. So the way you get around that, just like Muslims, is you say, well, the Bible's been changed. Now, I I love that argument. It's the stupidest argument ever. But it's a common argument, and it's an argument that people often use. You know, they'll say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's been changed. And you pass them it and say, well, show me where. They don't know, but they've heard that so often that they believe it to be true. When, in fact, if you were a secular, non-believing Greek or Hebrew scholar or archaeologist who actually studied the Bible just out of interest as a historical book and nothing more than that, you wouldn't arrive at the conclusion that it's been changed. So one doesn't have to believe that the Bible hasn't been changed on faith. That's actually an issue of historical fact. So if you take this book, obviously this is a translation, but if you take this book and you compare it to ancient manuscripts, the idea of it being changed is simply 
false. Right? That doesn't mean you're not going to bump into some, a few bad manuscripts here and there or bad translations. But to say the Bible's been changed over the centuries, it's just simply not true. But Muslims love to use that because it doesn't reconcile with their beliefs, even though the Quran says you're supposed to read the Injil and the Gospels and the books of Moses. So they, they would say then that anybody who says that the Bible is the only true source of authority are foolish. So here's actually a quote from the Book of Mormon. Many of the Gentiles shall say, a Bible, a Bible, we've got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. Thou fool, that shall say, a Bible, we've got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all the words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. So that comes from the Book of Mormon in a book within it called Second Nephi 29, 3, 6, and 10. They're also, uh, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, cover a broad array of subjects, and they supposedly claim to have restored to the world many truths that have gone missing from the Scripture. So the Book of Mormon, this is another quote from the Book of Mormon recorded in a, uh, a um, publication called Gospel Principles. One of the standard works of the church that has an account of God's dealing with the people of the American continents from about 2200 B.C. to 421 A.D., it was translated from gold plates by Joseph Smith and contains the fullness of the gospel. So uh, there's all kinds of stuff in here about their their view of um, uh, Scripture. It's radically different than ours. Um just some other things, though, under this category of revelation. The Bible is only valued when read and interpreted in light of other LDS teachings. So they teach in Mormon doctrine that when the Bible is read under the guidance of the Spirit and in harmony with the many Latter-day revelations which interpret and make plain its more mysterious parts, it becomes one of the most priceless volumes known to man. But you need the LDS stuff to get there. That's the point, right? So it's quite a bit different in terms of its view of of revelatory authority in that we have Old and New Testament and they have a lot of other stuff written in the 1800s. So apparently during that time there's corruption because it was insufficient to lead person to truth before that. And then how do they see God? So we focus much on the, the triunity of God. They believe that there are many gods. So they're polytheists. So Brigham Young in his Journal of Discourses said, How many gods there are, I do not know. But there never was a time when there were not gods. Finesse. He also, Joseph Smith also says in the history of the church, this is another publication, Many men say there's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say that, I say that is a strange God somehow. Three in one and one in three. It would make the biggest God in the world. He would be a wonderfully big God. He would be a giant or a monster. Later he says, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage. Jesus Christ, a separate and distinct personage from God the Father. And the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. So again, that's, that's called polytheism, meaning that there is more than one God. Now the Father 
who is God the Father in Mormonism? This is interesting. God the Father was originally a man who progressed to Godhood with a body of flesh and bones. So that's the goal of the Mormon, right? To, prog- to progress to a state of Godhood. So the prophet Joseph Smith said, God himself was once as we are and as an exalted man. I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in a form, like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form of a man. The father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's and the son also. Again, this is radically different than biblical Christianity. They are not uh, omnipresent. They do not believe that God the Son or the Holy Spirit are omnipresent. They are localized entities, so they're unable to be all places at once. God became the Father God after learning truth, aggressively pursuing Godhood, and being obedient to the laws of the gospel. And because he was able to do that, you in theory are also able to do that. God the Father has a wife uh, through whom he procreates spirit children. So here are some quotes from Mormon doctrine. Implicit in the Christian verity, that means truth, that all men are the spirit children of an eternal father is the usually unspoken truth that there is that they are also the offspring of an eternal mother. An exalted and glorified man of holiness could not be a father unless a woman of like glory, perfection, and holiness was associated with him as a mother. So again, it's quite, quite drastically distinct from biblical Christianity. God would stop being God if intelligences stopped supporting him as God. That's another interesting concept. So if, if intelligences, let's say us, stop supporting him, he no longer is God, or other gods stop supporting him. He's no longer God. So he says, the universe is filled with a vast number of intelligences. Elohim is God simply because of all these intelligences that honor and sustain him as such. If he, God, should ever do anything to violate the confidence or sense of justice of those intelligences, they would promptly withdraw their support, and the power, he puts that in quotes, of God would disintegrate. That's it very 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 different view of god than than we would have so how about jesus christ jesus christ existed in the spirit world he was the eldest of many spirit children born to god the father so he's god's little boy and he was the most godlike of all the sons and daughters of god the father and basically worked his way up so he was appointed in eternity past to save mankind he's he's the spirit brother of lucifer in the historical sense, as a spirit, children of heavenly parents, but not in an ethical sense. That is, Christ is morally opposed to everything that Lucifer represents, but they are spirit brothers. So here's what it says in, in the gospel through the ages. This is another quote. The Holy Scriptures give an account of a great council which is held, was held in the spirit world before man was placed on the earth. This meeting was presided over by God, our eternal father, and those in attendance were his sons and daughters. So there's a big meeting that takes place, big church service. Eternal father explained to the assembly throng, the great gospel plan of salvation, the appointment of Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world was contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, his spirit brother of Jesus, desperately tried to become the savior. But basically he lost. He went to second string and Jesus came forward. 
So how was Jesus then created? Well, Jesus was not miraculously begotten by the Holy Spirit or born of a virgin. He was begotten through sexual intercourse between Mary and God the Father. So he says Christ was begotten. This is in Mormon doctrine. Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. So they deny then the eternality of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ, which are fundamental doctrines, in case you didn't already know that. Kind of important. Jesus was a polygamist as well, who married at least Mary Magdalene, Mary the sister of Lazarus, and Martha. Jesus also had children through his multiple marriages. This doctrine taught by early LDS teachers is minimized today, but not denied. So a lot of the kind of extreme wacky stuff, it's sort of been sanitized, but you can't really deny it because it's Joseph Young and, or Brigham Young and Joseph Smith that they're teaching these kinds of things. So just like the Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's elements of Mormonism that have sort of been sanitized, that the edges have been filed off, the corners have been filed off, but they haven't been officially denied because to deny them is to not deny your your founder right and that's obviously kind of problematic when he's the prophet um a lot of other stuff here jesus rose from the grave his resurrection did not destroy death and sin it only ensured that all men would be resurrected brought back to life and permanently joined to body and soul so there's no vicarious substitutionary atonement doctrine in the mormon church that's 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 the stuff of fairy tales in their mind or corruption in the church. Holy Spirit is a divine essence. So it's kind of like a lot of cults, and this isn't you know super precise, but if I wave my hand, I move air. You might not see the air moving, but I wave my hand, I move air, right? If we colored it or we had smoke in there, you'd see it. So that's kind of like what the Holy Spirit is in Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness Church. It's like the, the force that emanates off of God's movements. But the Holy Spirit is not to be thought of as a distinct person, personality within their belief system. Uh, what about humanity? Humanity is man. Man is an eternal being like God. He originally came from eternal spirit matter. Sounds a little bit like pantheism in that respect. After God reached the status of Godhood, he and his celestial wife then procreated spirit children out of that union. And that is where we came from. So just a couple quotes here. Man, this is from Doctrine and Covenants, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made neither indeed can be, down further in another book called The Gospel Through the Ages. Life, intelligence, mind, the light of truth, or whatever name one gives to the center of the personality of man, is an uncreated, eternally existent, indestructible entity. So again, that's, that sounds conceptually a lot like the idea of ultimate reality within the pantheistic uh, religions. Where we, there's... All of us are sort of one in essence, and, and then we're sort of separated out in clumps and formed into individual people. Jesus came into existence in the same way all men did. Therefore, he is literally our elder brother. Life, everyone lived a life with Jesus in heaven before coming to earth. So we've, we've all met him in the past. 
after being raised in the spirit world, the spirits made a, 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 a came to earth in temp, temples of flesh, and they are in the, in the process of coming to earth in temples of flesh. We have forgotten about our our eternal existence prior to this. So we existed before, but in being enwrapped in flesh, we've forgotten about that. Christ's death cannot uh, remove personal sins. It can only provide people with an opportunity to remove their own sins by achieving salvation. So it's, it's like every other religion opposed to biblical Christianity or sect or cult or whatever it might be. It's works-oriented, just a different set of rules, but it's works-oriented. God the Father. No, G- okay. No, Jesus. Jesus did. So Jesus slept with. Uh, Jesus was a polygamist. Oh, sorry. No, the Father had relations with Mary, Jesus' mother. Jesus slept, had relations with Mary Magdalene. Yeah. David? Yes, before they came, were incarnated into human form, just like all of us. As a spirit being. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and then he became a man through that. I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Mormonism in its original form is admittedly absurd. And when one has a conversation with a person who believes this kind of stuff, obviously you want to show gentleness and respect. That's the command of First Peter chapter 3. But when you just hear it, it's like, really? Like if I was creating a religion, I could come up with something better than that. <laughs> well, you know, he, he wondered if he came across some shrooms out in the bu- bush. Yeah, yeah. The magical kind. Okay. Service or something like that. 
Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The basic idea is is here we are, here we were, here we are. God went back, we can go back. So I probably don't have this down pat, but the basic idea of Mormonism is as God once was, so we once were, and has as God has become, so we can become. So there's like a cycle. You're you're in in this spirit world, separated out into individual essences. You come down here into created form. You live a good life, and you go back into heaven and enjoy all the pleasures of their view of heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And there, there, the the other attractional factor to, well, many faiths, but this one in particular is there's there's not really an emphasis on the depravity of humanity. Uh, the idea that no, you're you're a sinner, you've offended God, and you're actually not even equipped. To get back into a good relationship with him, it requires Jesus doing something on your behalf that you can't do, which we interpret as a gift through the eyes of faith. It's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but in many religions, it's like, okay, well, I can sort of make it right with God or the gods or get back to wherever I'm supposed to be by following a prescribed set of rules and regulations. And if I can just sort of get those down then I'm going to be back to where I should be. So it 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 soft pedals the doctrine of sin and dangles the carrot of divinity before you. And those are two things that human beings kind of like to hear. So I think you're correct in that assessment. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the exact processes as to how that happened or the timeline or how that would all fit into the parts of the Bible that they would affirm maybe haven't been been changed. But that's the basic concept behind it. So salvation then, just to emphasize it, eternal life must be earned, it's not a gift. So the Mormon doctrine says eternal life is a reward for obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And then the Book of Mormon says it is by grace that we are saved. Well, that sounds actually quite biblical until you read the next line. After all we can do. So do everything you can. Let's say you get 90% up the ladder. God will throw in the other 10% and you're good to go. But you got to you know, work your way up. So the first phase of the afterlife is known as spirit prison. 
In the general sense, it's the realm of the dead where deceased individuals wait the resurrection and judgment. Righteous spirits wait in paradise while unrighteous spirits wait in hell. Christ bridges the gulf between the two places so that those in paradise and hell can freely mingle. This enables unrighteous spirits to repent and gain salvation through the gospel preached to them by righteous spirits. That's very interesting that there's no infinite chasm between heaven and hell, but there's actually some bridges back and forth so you can kind of be evangelized in hell. There's three degrees of glory. There's the telestial glory, the, the kingdom, the terrestrial glory, and the celest, celestial glory. And um, so in the, in the Mormon doctrine, then it says, there are in eternity kings and kingdoms of glory to which all resurrected persons, except sons of perdition, anybody who's rejected this, will eventually go celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Some of the adult people who live from the day of Adam to the present time will go to the telestial kingdom. They will be, uh, they will be the endless hosts of people who have been carnal, sensual, and devilish, who've chosen the vain philosophies of the world rather than accept the testimony of Jesus, who've been liars, thieves, sorcerers, adulterers, blasphemers, or murderers. So that's sort of, I guess you could say, like the equivalent of our hell, where you're going to get evangelized from people in the upper levels. Then the terrestrial kingdom is accountable people who die without law. Those who reject the gospel in this life and who reverse their course and accept it in the spirit world, so post-mortem salvation. Honorable men on earth who are blinded by the craftiness of men and who therefore do not accept and live the gospel law. And members of the LDS church who are not valiant, but who instead are lukewarm in their devotion to the church and righteousness. So that's kind of like the middle, the middle layer, sort of like the equivalent of like a purgatory, right? Where you're not quite where you want to be, but you're not where you don't want to be. And then the celestial kingdom, of course, is the ultimate place where the, the good, the true Mormons responded to the God's revelation through the various books goes. So you, you, there's always a second chance uh, after uh, death. Those who do not go to one of the kingdoms of glory are termed sons of perdition. Sons of perdition include Satan, all his angels, any who have willingly rejected LDS teachings, like Jonathan. Apostates from the LDS church and extremely evil people. All those are assigned to the outer darkness for all of eternity. Okay, So apparently there are some who can commit unpardonable sins that are beyond redemption. And those include like the, the most evil of the evil along with Satan, the devil, and demons, and so forth and so on. So ult ultimately then, there is no salvation outside of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And those who who gain eternal life, receive... This is literally from the Mormon doctrine, the book called the Mormon Doctrine. Those who gain eternal life receive exaltation. They are gods. Those who have been born into God through the obedience to the gospel, made by valiant devotion to the righteous, obtain exaltation and reach the status of godhood. So it's, you actually become a god in Mormonism if you abide by the regulations and laws of the LDS church and then get whatever grace is needed in addition to that to get there. 
So that's the basic view of salvation and punishment. So we become gods because we're literally offspring of beings who were once like us and progressed to godhood. So we're going to end there because that sort of deals with their the overarching structure of their beliefs. Next week I want to talk about some of their very interesting and unique uh, doctrines in terms of how they do services, their, their um, extreme interest in genealogical research, baptism of the dead, and, and some of this other stuff that's part of the Mormon church, okay? So have a good evening. We'll see you again next week, if not on Sunday.